0: Verse number 46 of Matthew chapter 26. Word of God says, Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. Now, I know we're beginning in the middle of a conversation there, but if your Bible is like mine, I've got a a red-letter edition, I can see clearly that these are the words of the Lord Jesus. And they are getting ready to go down to the garden. And he is uh, getting ready to be, or they've already gone to the garden, they're getting ready to, be, uh, to meet Judas, and he'll be betrayed. Verse 47, the Bible says, "...and while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude, with swords and staves, from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he, hold him fast." And forthwith he came to Jesus, and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they, and laid hands on Jesus, and took him." Let's pray. Father, I pray that over these next few moments, you bless the preaching your word. Lord, the the ability to reach down, pull heaven down here to this room this morning is beyond me. The ability, Lord, to be able to reach down and to pull hell up to show to a lost sinner... What lays in store for them if they reject Christ, it's beyond me. Lord, the ability to bring Christ and show Him glorious and worthy of worship and service and devotion before the eyes of those that know You. Lord, it's beyond me this morning. So, Father, all I know to do is just confess my weakness and plead for Your power, Lord, that You might speak to hearts and that You might accomplish Your will this morning. Lord, I love You, and I thank You for loving me. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In Matthew chapter 26, we've read just a few verses, but they have set the scene before us for the betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what I'm interested in mostly this morning is a phrase that is used in verse 49. It is Judas that makes this statement to the Lord Jesus. He had already determined, worked out a sign with the chief priests and the elders of how he was going to betray Jesus. He said, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he, hold him fast. But when he comes to Jesus, he says something to him that is of great interest to me. Verse 49, the Bible says, "...and forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him." That interests me this morning for this reason, that this greeting from Judas to Jesus was not in any way part of the original plan of how to signify who the Lord Jesus was, how to mark him for his betrayal, But for some reason, from the heart of Judas, he thought it appropriate when he met the Lord Jesus in the garden that evening to see Him and to cry out, Hail, Master! Now, this word hail we don't use very often today. Usually, uh, when a person, uh, you hear them out in public and they say hail, they're either uh, cursing or uh, they're talking about the ice that falls from the sky. Amen? But the term hail, H-A-I-L, is a term that uh, denotes about three different things. And I want you to mark these down either in your mind or your margins. And I want you to remember these throughout the preaching uh, this morning. Let me say, number one, that a hail is a greeting. When a person comes and sees someone else, we uh, say something similar. We see someone, we say, hello. But it was common in this time, and it still is in some places in the world, When you saw someone, when you met someone, when you saw them coming down the road to cry out and to say hail to them. It is a greeting. Let me say number two, that not only does a hail denote greeting, but a hail marks an interaction. How many of you have ever heard someone talk about hailing a cab? You ever heard that before? When you hail someone, you are interacting with them. You are communicating with them. You are reaching out. Your life is touching their life. You are affecting a change in them. You are expecting a change in your life from them. You are interacting with another human being when you cry out and hail someone. Let me say number three, that a hail not only denotes greeting and not only marks an interaction, but oftentimes hail denotes respect. For instance, we have sang the song, and I, actually the choir was working on it, and uh, they'll probably get to sing it sometime soon, but you no doubt have heard the song, Oh, hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown Him Lord of all. You've heard people say things like, all hail the king or hail the queen of England, so on and so forth. And it denotes a great respect being bestowed upon an individual. What you're doing is you're calling all of society to look at this person with respect, with adoration and with admiration. And with those three truths in mind, I find it interesting that Judas, when he sees the Lord Jesus, he did not have to say this. But when he saw him, he said, Hail, Master. In fact, when we look over in chapter 27 here in a little while, we'll find another group of people that when they saw the Lord Jesus, they hailed him. And then in chapter 28, we'll find an instance where the Lord Jesus, when he met a group of people, he cried out and said, All hail!" These three hails uh, uh, sort of uh, gravitate around the betrayal, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And it, it prompts me to say this this morning, and let this be a theme for the message, that what you do with Jesus will determine what eternity is for you. If a hail is a greeting, well, then how you greet Jesus, how you are met with the Lord Jesus, can I ask you something? Uh, How is it that you view Him? How is it that you interact with Him? Is He precious to you? Is He reverent to you? Is He someone that you want to worship and to glorify? Do you see Him as the Son of God and God in the flesh? How you greet Him and His approach unto you will determine how you spend eternity. Listen, there's a lot of folks that when met with the convicting power of the Holy Ghost in their life, and I'm talking about uh, lost people, but I'm also talking about saved people, that when they're met with that, they push back against it. And it's natural for the flesh to do that. Uh, we were talking in Sunday school this morning. We talk about the craziest things in Sunday school. I don't know how your Sunday school class goes. But we just talk about all kinds of crazy stuff usually. And uh, and we teach the Bible. We do that too. But uh, we always talk about a lot of crazy stuff too. And we, we were talking about Jeremy was praising the Lord that he was able to get his car fixed. And, uh, uh, you know, we were talking, you know, on that day when everything's going wrong, he was saying he broke a bolt off in there and then he was trying to get the bolt off, broke some steel off in that and that, I don't know, kicked the cat and, and his head fell off. And, it, you know, just things just go crazy when you're working. Working on cars, And those are hey, amen? Come on now. Hey, amen? If you've ever worked on a car, then you're either amening or you're lying right now. Amen? One of the two. On days like that, man, those are days when the flesh shows up and says, hey, I'm going to run things today, you know? Well, he tries to do the same thing when the Holy Ghost convicts you. He tries to show up and say, hey, don't you listen to that Holy Ghost. So I'm not just talking about lost people this morning. I'm talking about saved people too. How we greet the Lord Jesus when He approaches unto us and deals with us. I think how we interact with Him is going to determine how we spend eternity. In other words, do we, do we reject Him and push Him away? Do we push Him into a corner? Do we push away His wooing and His urging and His molding and His working? Or do we embrace it? Do we say, Lord, I desire for you to work in my heart and in my life? Now, for a lost person, that determines eternity. But for a saved person, that determines effectiveness. Uh, Listen, this whole thing of surrendering to the Lord Jesus, that didn't end after you got saved. That only began when you got saved. And then I think also how we denote respect unto Him. Is an important uh, way that we're going to find out and, and, and an important signifier of what our spiritual life is going to be. See, the lost person doesn't respect the Lord Jesus, typically. Now, he may have a, a cultural respect, you understand. He may have a societal respect. I mean, uh, listen, he, he may he may turn down his music when he drives by the church house, or, or he may quiet down his conversation when he sees somebody praying in a restaurant. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a real personal reverence and respect for the Lord Jesus. Let me say that respect for the Lord Jesus begins by accepting Him as your Savior. It does not matter what your uh, dynamic and relationship is with the church house or with the preacher or with your Bible or whatever it might be. If you do not uh, receive the Lord Jesus Christ, then anything else is just emptiness, is just hollowness, is vanity, it's hypocrisy. And when we look at these three different passages, I see three different ways when people have been met with this term hell That They interact with the Lord Jesus, and I just want you very quickly to mark them down and note them this morning. Let me say that when we see the story of Judas, and we look at his life, and we look at what he was faced with and the decisions he made, I believe we could use one word to sum up his interaction with God, and that would be the word rejection. And let me say that in the verses we've read, I believe we see the hail of rejection symbolized and embodied in the person of Judas you know, when we think of somebody that is a God rejecter, somebody that, is, that has pushed away God, I think we think of someone that is openly hostile to God. But do you know that you can, you can be uh, perfectly friendly with the things of God and still reject the Lord Jesus Christ? And Judas is a perfect example of that. I, I, I was talking to Miss Connie this morning about that song that she sang a month or two ago uh, about how Jesus bowed and washed the feet of Judas. Uh, You know, the thing that fascinates me about the story of Judas is this, not that he was able to fool the Lord Jesus because he didn't fool the Lord Jesus, but that he he walked so straight. He talked the talk. He walked the walk. He knew how to represent, how to how to appear as a follower of Jesus Christ to such a degree that on the night that the Lord Jesus said he'd be betrayed, the disciples didn't say, is it Judas? They said, is it I? They would have thought they would have betrayed Jesus before Judas would have betrayed Jesus. So, listen, this whole thing about rejecting Christ, it's not about being openly hostile. We think of a Christ rejecter, as a, of a God rejector as one of these militant atheists that's marching up and down in front of, you know, the Creation Museum or whatever it might be, or getting on Facebook and acting like an idiot. You don't have to be that to reject Jesus Christ. I see three things that ought to shake us and cause us to examine ourselves and see whether we'd be in the faith. Let me say, number one, that we note His familiarity with Jesus. Now, remember, this is a dark night. Uh, this is the middle of the night when this interaction is taking place. This is not in broad daylight. In fact, the Bible talks about the torches that they came with. This is the middle of the night. It would not have been easy to identify someone if you hadn't been familiar with them. In fact, uh, he was so familiar that he told the priest, he said, I'll go up, I'll see him, I'll find him, I'll kiss him on the jaw, and when I do that, you can come and you can lay hold on him because I know what he looks like and you don't. He knew the Lord Jesus in a familiar enough way that in the pitch dark of night, in the middle of a garden, uh, no doubt with his heart beating out of his chest, no doubt with stakes higher than have ever been uh, in human history, he was able and clear-eyed enough to find the Lord Jesus in that dark garden and to walk up and to know Him and to see Him as who He was. What I'm saying is this, Judas was familiar with Jesus Christ. There's a lot of folks that that's the extent of their Christianity is that they know about it. Uh, You'll find this to be true. You walk up down the street and start witnessing to people, and you go knocking on doors. Hey, if you you just ask someone if they're saved, you won't find anyone's not saved. Not in East Tennessee you won't. Everybody knows the language. Everybody knows. And you can even ask them, what does that mean to be saved? And they might even say, believe in Jesus is what it means. But listen, just because you're familiar with the things of God, that doesn't mean you know God. Judas was familiar. He was more familiar than anybody else in that garden that night. He knew what Jesus looked like. Let me say this. One of the great condemning truths of our generation is we can't say we don't know what Bible Christianity looks like. Now listen, I understand. People talk about the old days and the revivals and the move of God. And I understand that. And I'm not diminishing that. I'm not belittling or or de-emphasizing that. But I'm saying this. There's nobody in this room that will be able to stand before the, the great white throne judgment or the judgment seat of Christ and say, I did not know what Bible Christianity was. I did not know what Bible Christianity looked like. We're familiar with it. I mean, listen, I understand society is becoming more and more secular and humanistic and godless. I'm aware of that. But we still live in a place... I was was standing... I can't remember where I was standing, but somebody was wearing a t-shirt. It was in a public place. And I saw a woman wearing a t-shirt. And it said on it, Jesus, Sweet Tea, and Union Bank. That's what it said. I don't know where that bank is, but i got to find it. Amen. (laughs) Wearing a T-shirt. This is a public institution that will put the name of Jesus on a T-shirt that they sell or give out or distribute to the public or whatever it is. I'm saying this. We're not living in secular, godless, humanistic Europe. Right? We're not living in the pagan darkness of of Asia or of Africa. You and I, we're sitting here, we're familiar with the things of God. And let me tell you what that does. That increases your accountability. Because you're going to be without excuse one of these days. I see that he was familiar with Jesus. I'd like for you to know the second thing. The Bible says this. What did he say to him? He said, Hail, Master. And he kissed him. He wasn't afraid to get up close and personal with the Lord Jesus. I would say that he was friendly towards him. Friendly. Nobody thought it was weird in the garden that night when he did that. Now, we understand culturally it was common at that time for you to meet someone, kiss them on the jaw, and and greet them. Uh, Listen, when I came to this church, uh, the church I came from didn't even hug. Amen? And it took a little while to get used to it. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. You've come from them churches where everybody just, you know, they sit on opposite sides and and text each other, and that's how they interact. We we hug people around here. I'm sorry, but but we do. But, uh, you know, we we ain't got to this level yet. But, uh, you know, at that time it was common for you to see someone, to go up and reach and to kiss them on the cheek. None of the disciples thought this was odd. Wouldn't you think, now this is the night the Lord Jesus is going to be betrayed. Here in a few moments, once Peter realizes what's taking place, he's going to take his sword out and he's going to cut off the high priest servant's ear, Malchus's ear. And you say, well, why did he do that, preacher? Well, I don't think he was aiming for his ear. I don't think he was aiming for Malchus at all. I think he was trying to get to Judas, is what I believe. And uh, I don't think a fisherman has a precision swordsman skills enough to take a man's ear off without taking his head off. So evidently, Peter had the will to stop what was taking place that night. We know that. The Lord Jesus said that to him. You remember uh, that on the night before the Lord Jesus was betrayed, that Peter took and rebuked the Lord. And uh, when the Lord said, I'm going and I'm going to be uh, delivered into the hands of wicked men, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to rise again the third day. Peter said, be it far from thee. And the Lord Jesus turned right back around and rebuked Peter. And He said, get thee behind Me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Evidently, Peter had the will to stop what was about to happen. But whenever Judas walked up and grabbed Jesus around the neck and kissed him on the cheek, when he said, Hail, Master, Peter didn't think there was nothing funny going on. You know why? Because Judas had always been friendly towards the things of God. He had been the purse keeper, the treasurer. He had traveled with the disciples. He had been in the midst of ministry. And by the way, do you know the Bible says in Luke chapter 9 that Jesus sent them out two by two? Now, I don't know if you do math like I do math. I know common core has got everybody messed up now. But if you do math like I do math, there's 12 disciples. That means if he sent them out two by two, he didn't send 10 of them out two by two and then one of them out by himself and Judas is sitting in the corner. He sent all 12 of them out two by two. That means Judas was out on that ministerial journey, casting out devils, healing people, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of of heaven. Judas was right out. He was friendly with the things of God. He didn't bother him. It wouldn't have bothered him come to wallridge Baptist Church, sit right down on a pew beside somebody and have a good time. It wouldn't have bothered him to go over and sit, sit in Fellowship Hall and, and eat and, and have a good time with, with God's people. That didn't bother Judas. He wasn't uncomfortable around the things of God. Now, I understand. You hear people say, well, you know, a sinner ought to be uncomfortable where the preaching of the Word of God is. I understand that. But let me say this, that, that a, a hardened person can be comfortable anywhere. A hardened person can be comfortable anywhere, and you know how it often happens. It happens the same way that you bull a frog. They started out when they were young, and they were just around it their whole life, and they're friendly with it. Hey, the preacher's not their enemy; he's a good old guy. Hey, listen, the church folks—they're not bad people. I mean, they're they're hypocrites, you know, but they don't—I mean, they're not not any worse hypocrites than the people I go and drink with. So who cares? Friendly with the things of God—it doesn't bother them to be around the church house. But we note that there was a third truth. Not only was he familiar with Jesus and friendly with Jesus, but notice the fakeness that he had with Jesus. He could go up and kiss the cheek of the Son of God and be doing it to betray him. Then you say, preacher, I'd never do that. Oh, let me tell you something though. If you've grown up in the house of God and around the things of God, and if your Christianity's fake, and I don't mean fake as in, well, I mess up. Well, hey, I mess up too. But I mean, if you've grown up around the things of God, and you know you're lost, you know you're not saved, you know you need to be saved, it's just as big a betrayal of the Lord Jesus as Judas performed that night. You know, all God wants from you and I is honesty. And God puts up with a lot of from us just to have some honesty. That's part of the problem. In that, I, man, I don't I don't know if this is real good on you or real bad on you, but I really feel like preaching for a few moments. Part of our problem is we can't be honest anymore. You know, we got, to, we got this whole Sunday morning church house religion where everybody pretends they come in, they put their masks on, they ain't got no problems, they've not done anything wrong. Uh, you know, a preacher, be it me or somebody else or a Sunday school a teacher, get up and preach or teach their guts out, and people just sit there and, oh, yeah. yeah, I know I'm not perfect. Yeah, I know I'm not. Listen, I'm not perfect, but I follow after. Now, what Paul said, not as though I'd already apprehended, neither were already perfect, neither had already attained, but I follow after. Just because nobody's perfect ain't an excuse for everybody to be reprobating. Right? It ain't an excuse for you. It ain't an excuse for me. Hey, I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. But we ought to be trying to live for the Lord Jesus. He was fake. He could walk the walk. He could talk the talk. He would go with the rest of the guys. And everybody thought everything was fine. But he knew something was wrong. And God knew something was wrong. And all that church house religion, I know there wasn't a church, there was a synagogue, but by the way, Judas would have spent a lot of time in the synagogue. Let's just call it, for you and I, it's that church house religion. Let's call it that synagogue house religion for Judas. He would have been around that. He would have spent time around that, but all the while it was fake. He knew in his heart of hearts something wasn't right. He knew there was something missing. He knew he wasn't square with God. There was a fakeness to it. I fear that, we're going to find out one of these days when we stand before God. We're going to find out what's real and what's not. Amen. And that, that's not a threat. That's just a warning. <laughs> you know, because uh, guess what? One of these days, whatever Toby Weber is, it's going to be laid bare before God. Whatever you are, it's going to be laid bare before God. There'll be nowhere to run. There'll be nowhere to hide. There'll be no excuses to be made. So you better know that what you have is real. Amen. Because that's what you're going to need in that day is something real. I see a hail of rejection. Turn over to chapter 27, just a page over in most people's Bibles. And I want you to look down at verse number 27. Now, the Lord Jesus, He has been brought before the the council there in Caiaphas' house. And now He has been sent out and He has been sent to Pilate. And listen to what it says in verse number 27. The Bible says, "...then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto Him the whole band of soldiers." And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put on his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. We say that if in Judas we see the hail of rejection, then I believe in these soldiers we see the hail of reproach. Do you remember the prophecy given in Psalms chapter 22, verse number 6, about the Lord Jesus when He said, I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. Now, if what we see in Judas's situation is uh, exemplified in church members that live their life or, or church-going people or whatever you want to call them without knowing God. Let me say that in the hail of reproach, we see a picture of how the world at large treats the Lord Jesus. How the world at large treats the Lord Jesus. I want you to notice three things about it. I want you to notice first off uh, how the ju- their judgment of His virtue, how they thought His virtue was. Notice what it says in verse number 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall. The common hall. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the common hall was the place where uh, judgment was meted out by the Gentile officials. And it was a place where Jews were forbidden to go. In fact, the Bible says over in John chapter number 18, Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment, is what it's called there. And it was early, and they themselves went not, speaking of the Jews, into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. The Jew wouldn't go into the judgment hall. They knew that to enter into that place where blood would be shed, where Gentile judgment would be passed, would have defiled them religiously. And I find it interesting that the soldiers took Jesus and without a second thought they led Him into the common hall. Let me say, I believe this was an indictment upon their belief in His virtue. They didn't think it defiled Him when they took Him into the common hall because they thought He was already defiled. The world, i got news for you, I don't know if you realize this, the world will talk a lot about Jesus. He's a good man, he's a good teacher, he's this and that. You know what the separating point between the world's opinion of Jesus and the Bible's opinion of Jesus is? It is in His deity and His spotless nature. It's not enough to think He's a good man. You have to believe He is the sinless Son of God. Listen, if you have loved ones, if you have mothers or daddies or sisters or brothers or children or grandchildren, and all they believe about Jesus is He was a good man, not that He was the sinless Son of God. I hate to tell you this, but that's not good enough. They must accept Him as the sinless Son of God that died in their place to save them from their sins. Not enough to believe He was a good person or a good teacher. You must believe He's who He said He is. Uh, the Bible, uh, Jesus talked about uh, how that uh, He didn't bear witness of Himself. There was a greater that bore witness of Him. And He spoke about the Father speaking from heaven, saying, This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But the world rejects that concept of Jesus. They don't mind a Jesus that's on the same level as Buddha. They don't mind a Jesus that's on the same level as Muhammad or Mary Baker Eddy. or They don't mind a Jesus that's on the same level as Joseph Smith. That doesn't bother them. But what bothers the world is this idea that He is the way The truth, the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. The world treats him as a reproach. They make a judgment about his virtue. I want you to notice a second thing. Not only their judgment about his virtue, but notice their judgment of his validity. The Bible says in verse 28, "...and they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. When they had played it a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, "'Hail, King of the Jews.'" You know what they were saying by that? That's sarcasm, right? Well, anybody in here under 30? Then you know what sarcasm is good and well, amen? Young people love sarcasm. That's why, that's why young people love me, is I'm sarcastic. And uh, old people, they know what sarcasm is. They just ain't got no time for it, amen? I <laughs> just want you to turn back on Bonanza. They don't care. And uh, But you know what they were saying by calling him king of the Jews? They were mocking him. They were saying, you're not what you say you are. You know, the Bible or the world, again, let me say, they don't mind including Jesus in the grand pantheon of secular society. But they don't like this concept that he's who he said he is. I'm reminded of what Paul said to the worshipers at Mars Hill. Do you remember in Athens? And he walked down the row and he saw all these gods they had set up. They had a God for everything. They had a God for Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And had a God for rain and for sunshine and for fog and all these gods. And he looks at him, and he comes to the very end and he sees an altar that says, To the unknown God. And he says, This is the God that I believe in. I don't believe in the God that you know. I believe in the God that I know. <laughs> the God that you don't know, that's the one that I believe in. They didn't mind an altar for him in the midst of all the rest of their altars. But to stand up and say what Paul said, that this God is the creator of heaven and earth, that he sent his son, Jesus of Nazareth, approved among men of God, that they said, this is a strange thing to our ears. This is a strange thing. The world, they don't have a problem with the kind... this is important, and I'll tell you why. Because it'll help you as you navigate your Christian walk to know where you stand with people. Because I'm going to tell you something. We've never had a president that wasn't a Christian. You remember I was talking about sarcasm? but there's some truth to that. Every president we've ever had has been a Bible-believing Christian. I'm saying there is a humanistic, secular, godless Jesus that they don't mind. But that's not the Jesus of the Bible. They don't believe He's who He said He is. I believe He's who He said He is. I believe He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. I believe He's the coming King. I believe He's coming back. I believe He's coming back to set up an earthly kingdom. And listen, it ain't going to be long. We're going to be locking people like me and you in a psychiatric hospital for believing that. So let's go ahead and just get real comfortable with each other because we're going to be sitting there playing checkers with each other in house robes and slippers one of these days. And let's go ahead and just come to terms with the fact that we... Listen, either you believe He is who He says He is, or you reject Him, one of the two. There is no middle ground if it, to say He's not who He said He is. And you say, Preacher, who would say that? Lots of people say that. Now, maybe not anybody in this room. I'm aware of that. I hope nobody in this room would say that. But let me tell you something. A lot of our young people, young people college age, going into college classrooms, they'll hear that. A lot of our, even our little kids going into public school classrooms, they'll hear that. They'll hear, hey, you can carry your Bible, all right, but it it ain't no better than, you know, little Johnny's Koran. That's what they'll say. Just telling you, the world has rejected wholesale the truth of the Bible and the concept and witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's their judgment about His validity. Finally, I'd like you to note in this particular passage, not only their judgment of His virtue and of His validity, but notice their judgment of His value in verse number 30 and 31. The Bible says, and they spit on Him, and took the reed and smote Him on the head. And after that they had mocked Him, they took the robe off from Him, put His own raiment on Him, and led Him away to crucify Him. I want you to listen to me. Make no bones about it. Make no mistake about it. Despite the friendliness that secular society may seek to, to, to posture towards you and I, as Bible-believing Christians, that they are okay with Jesus, at the end of the day, they have no place and no room for the Jesus of the Bible. I promise you that. We are leading towards a one-world government. And you say, well, preacher, don't be political. I'm not. I'm being biblical. We're headed towards a globalistic society of a one-world government. And there will be no place for Bible-believing Christianity in that system, in that government. You say, but preacher, we'll be raptured out of here. That's right. By the time that the seven-year tribulation comes, we will be. But you don't think they're just going to set this thing up overnight, do you? Right now, uh, society's being cultured to this, being prepared to this, being pushed towards this. And listen, I know how bad it's going to get in the tribulation period. I don't know how bad it's going to get before it, though. So I'm just serving warning on you this morning that we're getting to a place in culture and society where we're going to have to start drawing a line and standing behind it. Saying, this is what I believe, and I'll not move from this position. That was their judgment and His value. At the end of the day, they took Him away and they crucified Him. Now, let me say this to you tonight. The Lord Jesus was crucified for you and me. And to treat his death as not being worth your devotion is just as bad as for them to carry him away, to spit upon him, to smite him, and to crucify him. The Bible talks about trodding the blood of the Son of God underfoot. And I understand the context, I understand the implication. Yeah, I understand that Paul is talking about those uh, that have been faced with the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus and have pushed it away and said, I'm not interested in that sacrifice. And they're trotting it underfoot. But let me say this to believers, that we need to understand that when when we're not devoted to the Lord Jesus, we're telling Him how little we believe His death, burial, and resurrection was worth. Listen, if Jesus is not worth more than an hour of your time on Sundays... What is your Christianity about in the first place? It's okay. It persecutes my flesh too. Alright? It doesn't just persecute yours when I say it. it persecutes my flesh too. If, listen, if He's not worth more than five minutes a day to you, then what's your Christianity about anyway? Can we look at those soldiers and say, Oh, what horrible people! Can we stand aghast at their treatment of the Lord Jesus and yet treat Jesus that way ourselves? I'm saying that maybe we have more in common with them than we'd like to admit. I see a hail of reproach, but I'm glad we don't have to end there, aren't you? I gotta get you all excited. I can't have you going to the Shonies cussing your preacher. It's bad for church growth. Look over in chapter 28. I wanna read a few verses to you. I'm glad that when man's hail could not get anything accomplished, that when God hailed man, it got something done. Boy, what a picture of Bible Christianity. What a picture of the Gospel. When man tried to reach for God, his arms were too short, but the Lord's arm is not shortened that he cannot save. And when when we approached unto God in the strength of our flesh, we couldn't do it. But when God approached us in the power of His glory and resurrection, He got the job done. There is one more hell that we find in chapter number 28. Look at verse number 1. We'll begin with verse number 1. The Bible says, "...in the end of the Sabbath..." As it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. The angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus which was crucified. He is not here, for He is risen, as He said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And Go quickly and tell His disciples that He is risen from the dead. And behold, He goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see Him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy, and did run to bring His disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail! And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. I see here in this passage not only the hail of rejection and the hail of reproach, but I see a hail of reception in chapter number 28. I believe, number one, that this was the hail of a conqueror. Amen? Amen? When Jesus says, All hail unto them, you realize this is the first time they've seen Him since the cross. And when He meets them and greets them, when they hear the musical notes of the voice of the Son of God floating upon the air, they are convinced and proven in that moment that Jesus is risen from the dead. And He is conqueror of death and of hell. Can I say this? Can I remind you about this? Especially, we're talking about that. Hail of rejection and that hail of reproach. At the end of, the, you better get on the winning side. Because at the end of the day, I don't know if you've read the end of your Bible, but Jesus is coming back in power and in glory. He is the Ancient of Days and He's setting up a throne and a kingdom into which all the other kingdoms of the earth will be drawn in and He will be the conqueror at last. He will be. If you're here today and your Christianity is fake, get you something real before you leave here today. Because Jesus is coming back, and He's coming back on the winning side of things. If you're here today and you have pushed away Jesus Christ, or maybe you've got loved ones that have done that. I know probably everybody in this room. Hey, listen, angry, hateful, lost people typically don't wake up and come to an independent Baptist church on Sunday mornings. I understand that. But you probably have some loved ones that are in that condition. You ought to be praying for them that they'd accept the Lord Jesus Christ, because time's not going to drag on forever. I think this was the hail of a conqueror. Let me say number two, this was the hail of communion. Why was he saying this? He didn't have to meet him there, but he wanted to give them an opportunity. I like this. You ready? To get close to him. You know, when God interacted with humanity, it was as a conqueror, but it was also for the purpose of communion. God is interested in you knowing him and you spending time with him. I want to tell you something. If you're here today and you would say, Preacher, I'm, I'm like Judas. I mean, I'm familiar with the things of God. I'm friendly towards them. I'm here today because I'm friendly towards them. But it's all fake. I know there's nothing real to it. Can I just send word from heaven to you this morning to say this, that God loves you and there's nothing God desires more out of your life than that you come to Christ and that you get a taste of that living water, that you get a slice of that bread from heaven, that you know Him personally and in a real way. That's what He desires. Why? He said, all hail. And what did they do? They came up (laughs) and they grabbed around the feet and began to worship Him. They took their proper place. That's where that's where mankind belongs, is at the feet of Jesus. And if you don't believe that, listen, I, I, when Adam was in the garden, he walked in the cool of the day, but I got something better than Adam had. I, I can be around his feet. I can hold him. I, 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 can, I can be close to him. I can have a personal relationship that Adam never could have with him. And that's where humanity belongs, insomuch as the Bible says there's coming today when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. So go ahead and just take your place at His feet. He's waiting for you. He's waiting for you. I see that this is a hail of communion. But finally, and I'm done, I see that this is a hail of commission. You know, He comes to Him and He says, All hail! And it proves and it shows that He is alive, that death could not hold Him that He has conquered. And it also conveys to those ladies that He has a desire for them to know Him, for them to uh, realize Him, for them to be close to Him, that He might be their Savior and their God. But then I see that He hailed them because He had a job for them to do. And He says, go tell the disciples that I'm going to Galilee. I think it's interesting because you know what? The angel had already told them that. But it's not enough to hear it from an angel. You've got to hear it from God. And so He comes and He gives them this commission. You know that God, He loves you. He wants to save you because He loves you. But He also wants to save you because He has a plan for your life. That's the reason. He has a desire to change your life for His glory. And to give you a purpose. Man, I've never seen a day when people walk around without purpose the way they do today. Listen, people protest any kind of nonsense that they can find. Just to have a purpose in life. And listen, no matter what you believe about whatever political cause, I could give a rip. But I'm saying this this morning. I'll give you a better cause to march about than a pipeline. I'll give you a better cause to march about than somebody being disenfranchised. I'll give you a greater cause in life than that. Actually, I won't, but Jesus can. He can. He can give you something that makes life worth living. Worth living. Listen, He'll do something for you. It won't make you burn cars, but it'll make you burn up the road sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. To give you something worth living for in life. He's got a plan for your life. He's got a plan for my life. There may be people in this room that they're saved, but they don't know what that plan is. They don't know what that plan is. They're just kind of stumbling around. A lot of Christians, I believe, are in that situation. They, they're saved. They know they're saved. They love God. But they're just kind of stumbling around. They're just making it from paycheck to paycheck, day to day, week to week, project to project. Listen, you say, preacher, what can I do about that? Well, you can find a place at this altar, and you can wrap your arms around the feet of the Son of God and you can say, Lord, I-, I just want to know what I need to be doing for Your cause, for Your glory, for Your kingdom. Lord, I want You to take my life and let it be wholly consecrated, Lord, to Thee. I want You to mold me and make me what You have me to be. And you know that the Lord loves you so much, He won't turn you away empty-handed. He'll give you a job to do. It may not be what you're looking for, what you're hoping for, what you're thinking it would be, but he'll give you something it'll be the best thing that you've ever had in life. There's nothing greater than living for God, being in the will of God, serving God. Uh, listen, I, I'd rather work myself to death serving God than lay up in the lap of luxury and never do anything for Him. And he comes to you this morning and he says, "All hail." And the question is, how will you respond? How will you respond? How are you going to interact with him this morning? I hope that you'll receive Him. If you're lost, that means to receive Him as your Savior. And if you're saved, it means to receive Him as your Lord and to submit and surrender your life unto Him that He might use you for His glory. I hope that inasmuch as He's dealt with you this morning, you'll deal with Him. With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed.